0: Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Showboat, the classic story from Edna Ferber that inspired one of the greatest American musicals. This is the eighth book in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads, featuring the acclaimed Canadian actress, artist, television, and radio host, Marilyn Lightstone. You can find the entire series online at classicalfm.ca or through your favorite podcast app. Now, let's turn to Marilyn as she reads Edna Ferber's Showboat. Chapter 15.
1: The Ravenel reverses, if they were noticed at all in Gambler's Alley, went politely unremarked. There was a curious and definite code of honor among the frequenters of Chicago's levee. You paid your gambling debts. You never revealed your own financial status by way of conversation. You talked little." You maintained a certain physical, sartorial, and social standard in the face of all reverses. There were, of course, always unmistakable signs to be read, even at the most passing glance. You drew your conclusions, made no comment. If you were seen to breakfast for days, a week, two weeks at the clock-eyed bakery. You were greeted by your confrere with the same suavity that would have been accorded you had you been standing treat at Billy Boyle's or the Palmer House. Your shoe might be cracked, but it must shine. Your linen might be frayed, but it must be clean. Your cheeks were perhaps a trifle hollow, but they must be shaven and smell pleasantly of bay rum.' You might dine at Berkey and Millen's, full meal fifteen cents, with ravenous preliminary onslaughts upon the bread and butter and piccolili, but you consumed delicately and fastidiously just so much and no more of the bountiful and rich repast spread out for your taking at Jeff Hankins or at Mike McDonald's. Though your suit was shabby, it must bear the mark of that tailor to the well-dressed sporting man, Billy McLean. If you were too impecunious for Hetty Chilson's, you disdain the window-tapping dives on Boiler Avenue and lower Clark Street and State, the sinister and foul shanties of Big Maud and her ilk. You bathed, shaved, dressed, ate, smoked with the same exotic care when you were broke as when luck was running your way. Your cigar was a mild one, also part of the code." and this mild one, usually a dead one, as you played, and no one is too broke for one cigar a day. Twelve o'clock, noon, found you awake. Twelve o'clock, midnight, found you awake. Somewhere between those hours you slept the deep, sweet sleep of the abstemious. You were, in short, a gambler and a gentleman. Thus, When the Ravenalls moved perforce, from the comfort of the Sherman to the threadbare shabbiness of the Ontario street boarding house, there was nothing in Gaylord Ravenall's appearance to tell the tale. If his cronies knew of his financial straits, they said nothing. Magnolia had no women friends. During the year or more of their residence in Chicago, she had been richly content with Kim and Gay. The child had a prim and winning gravity that gave her a curiously grown-up air. "'Do you know, Gay?' Magnolia frequently said. "'Kim sometimes makes me feel so gawky and foolish and young. When she looks at me after I've been amused about something, or am enthusiastic or excited or—well, you know. Anyway, she looks at me out of those big eyes of hers, very solemn, and I feel—oh, Gay!' You don't think she resembles, that is, do you think she is much like Mama? God forbid, ejaculated Ravenel piously. Kim had been Magnolia's delight during the late morning hours and the early afternoon. In company with the stolid nurse, they had fared forth in search of such amusement as the city provided for a child brought up amidst the unnatural surroundings of this one. The child had grown accustomed to seeing her nurse stand, finger on lips, eyes commanding silence, before the closed door of her parents' room at ten in the morning, at eleven even, and she got it into her baby head that this attitude, then, was the proper and normal one in which to approach the closed door of that hushed chamber. Late one morning, Magnolia, in nightgown and silken wrapper, had opened this door suddenly, to find the child stationed there, silent, grave eyed, admonitory, while in one corner against the doorcase reposed the favorite doll of her collection, a lymphatic blonde whose eyes had met with some unfortunate interior mishap which gave them a dying calf look. This sprawling and inert lady was being shushed in a threatening and dramatic manner by the sternly maternal Kim. There was. At sight of this, that which brought the quick sting of tears to Magnolia's eyes, she gathered the child up in her arms, kissed her passionately, held her close, brought her to Ravenel as he lay, yawning. Gay, look at her. She was standing by the door, telling her doll not to make any noise. Oh, she's only a baby. We don't pay enough attention to her. Do you think I neglect her? Oh, standing there by the door, and it's nearly noon. Okay, we oughtn't to be living here. We ought to be living in a house, a little house where it's quiet and peaceful, and she can play. Lovely, said Gay. Thebes, for example. Now, don't get dramatic, Nola, for God's sake. I thought we'd finished with that. With the change in their fortunes, the English nurse had vanished with the rest. She had gone, together with the hackneys, the high, smart, yellow cart, the violets, the green velvets, the box seats at the theater, the champagne. She, or her counterpart, never returned. But many of the lost luxuries did, from time to time. There were better days to come, and worse. Their real fortune gone— there now was something almost humdrum and methodical about the regularity of their ups and downs. There rarely was an intermediate state. It was feast or famine always. They actually settled down to the life of a professional gambler and his family. Ravenel would have a run of luck at faro. Presto, rooms at the Palmer House, a box at the races, the theatre, supper at Rector's after the theatre. Hello, gay! Evening, Mrs. Ravenel. Somebody's looking mighty lovely tonight. A new sealskin sack, her diamond ring on her finger, two new suits of clothes for Ravenel made by Billy McLean, a little dinner for Gay's friends at Cardinal Bemis's famous place on Michigan Avenue. <laughs> you couldn't fool the Cardinal. He would ask suavely, "What kind of a dinner, Mr. Ravenel?" If Gay replied, "Oh, um." a cocktail and a little red wine. Cardinal Bemis knew that luck was only so-so, and that the dinner was to be good, but plainish. But if in reply to the tactful question, Gay said magnificently, a cocktail, Cardinal, claret, saturn, champagne, and liqueurs. Famous knew that Ravanol had had a real run of luck, and prepared the canvasbacks boiled in champagne, or there were squabs or plover with all sorts of delicacies, and the famous frozen watermelon that had been plugged, filled with champagne, put on ice for a day, and served in such chunks of scarlet fragrance, as made the nectar and ambrosia of the gods seem poor, flavorless fare indeed. Magnolia, when luck was high, tried to put a little money by as she had instinctively been prompted to do during those first months of their marriage, when they still were on the cotton blossom, but she rarely had money of her own. Gay, when he had ready cash, was generous, but not with the handing over of the actual coin itself. "'Buy yourself some decent clothes, Nola, and the kid. Tell them to send me the bill.' That thing you're wearing is a terrible sight. It seems to me you haven't worn anything else for months.' Which was true enough. There was something fantastic about the magnificence with which he ignored the reason for her not having worn anything else for months. It had been, certainly, her one decent garment during the lean period just past, and she had cleaned and darned and refurbished to keep it so. Her experience in sewing during the old cotton-blossom days stood her in good stead now. There were times when even the Ontario Street Hotel took on the aspect of unattainable luxury. That meant rock bottom. Then it was that the Ravenals took a room at three dollars a week in a frowsy rooming house on Ohio or Indiana or Erie, the Bloomsbury of Chicago. There you saw unshaven men, their coat-collars turned up in artless attempt to conceal the absence of linen, sallying forth, pale in hand, at ten or eleven in the morning, in search of the matutinal milk and rolls to accompany the coffee that was even now cooking over the gas-jet. Morning was a musty jade on these streets, nothing fresh and dewy and sparkling about her. The ladies of the neighborhood lolled, huge, unwieldy, flaccid, in wrappers. In the afternoon, you saw them amazingly transformed into plump and pinkly-powdered persons, snugly corseted, high-heeled, rustling in silk petticoats, giving out a heady scent. They were friendly, voluble ladies who beamed on the pale, slim magnolia and said, "'Won't you smile for me just a little bit, hmm?' to the sedate and solemn-eyed Kim. Magnolia, too, boiled coffee and eggs over the gas jet in these lean times. Gravely, she counted out the two nickels that would bring her and Kim home from Lincoln Park on the streetcar. Lincoln Park was an oasis, a life-giving, breathing spot to the mother and child. They sallied forth in the afternoon, left the gas jet, the three-dollar room, the musty halls, the stout females behind them. There was the zoo. There was the lake. There was the grass. If the lake was their choice, it led inevitably to tales of the rivers. It was in this way that the background of her mother's life was first etched upon Kim's mind. The sight of the water always filled Magnolia with a nostalgia so acute as to amount to an actual physical pain. The childish treble would repeat the words as the two sat on a park bench, facing the great blue sea that was Lake Michigan. You remember the boat, don't you, Kim? Do I? Kim's diction was curiously adult, due doubtless to the fact that she had known almost no children. Of course you do, darling. Don't you remember the river and grandma and grandpa? Cap'n! Yes, I knew you remembered. And all the little children on the landing. And the band. And the steam organ. You used to put your hands over your ears and run and hide because it frightened you. And Joe and Queenie? Tell me about it. And Magnolia would assuage her own longing by telling and retelling the things she liked to remember. The stories with the years became a saga. Figures appeared, vanished, reappeared. The rivers wound through the hole. Ellie, Schultze, Julie, Steve, the man in the box with the gun, the old Creole Bill and Magnolia's first trip on the Mississippi, Mr. Pepper and the pilot house. All these became familiar and yet legendary figures and incidents to the child. They were her three bears, her bo-peep, her red riding hood, her Cinderella. Magnolia must have painted these stories with the color of life itself, for the child never wearied of them. Tell me, the one, about the time you were a little girl, and Grandma locked you in the bedroom because she didn't want you to see the show, and you climbed out of the window in your nighty. Kim Ravenel was probably the only white child north of the Mason-Dixon line who was sung to sleep to the tune of those plaintive, wistful Negro plantation songs, which later were to come into such vogue as spirituals. They were the songs that Magnolia had learned from Black Joe and from Queenie, the erstwhile rulers of the cotton-blossom galley. Swing low, sweet chariot, she sang. Oh, wasn't that a wide river? And of course, all God's chillin' got wings. Kim loved them. When she happened to be ill with some childhood ailment, they soothed her. Magnolia sang these songs always, as she had learned to sing them in unconscious imitation of the soft, husky negro voice of her teacher. Through the years of Kim's early childhood, Magnolia's voice might have been heard thus whenever the shifting Ravenal fortunes had tossed the three, whether the red plush luxury of the Sherman house, the respectable dullness of the family hotel, or the sordid fustiness of the cheap rooming house. Once, when they were living at the Sherman, Magnolia, seated in a rocking chair with Kim in her arms, had stopped suddenly in her song at a curious sound in the corridor. She had gone swiftly to the door, had opened it, and had been unable to stifle a little shriek of surprise and terror mingled. There stood a knot of black faces, teeth gleaming, Attracted by the song so rarely heard in the North, the Sherman House bellboys and waiters had eagerly gathered outside the closed door in what was, perhaps, as flattering and sincere a compliment as ever a singer received. Never did child know such ups and downs as did this daughter of the Chicago gambler and the showboat actress. She came to take quite for granted sudden and complete changes that would have disorganized anyone more conventionally bred. One week, she would find herself living in grubby quarters, where the clammy, fetid ghost of cabbage lurked always in the halls. The next would be a gay panorama of whisking waiters, new lace petticoats, drives along the lake front, ice cream for dessert, front seats at the matinee." The theater bulked large in the life of the Ravenals. Magnolia loved it without being possessed of much discrimination with regard to it. Farce, comedy, melodrama, the whole gamut as outlined by Polonius, all held her interested, enthralled. Ravenal was much more critical than she. You saw him smoking in the lobby, bored, dégagé. It might be the opening of the rebuilt Lincoln Theatre on Clark, near Division, with Gustav Frohman's company playing the charity ball. Oh, Gay, isn't it exciting? I don't think much of it. Cheap-looking theatre, too, isn't it? They might better have left it alone after it burned down. Kim's introduction to the Metropolitan Theatre was when she was taken, a mere baby, to see the spectacle America at the auditorium. Before she was ten, she had seen everyone, from Julia Marlowe to Anna Held, from Bernhardt to Lillian Russell. Gravely, she beheld the antics of the Rogers brothers, as gravely saw Claw and Erlanger's company in Foxy Quiller. "'It isn't that she doesn't see the joke,' Magnolia confided to Ravenel, almost worriedly. "'She actually doesn't seem to approve.' Of course, I suppose I ought to be glad that she prefers the more serious things, but I wish she wouldn't seem quite so grown up at ten. By the time she's twenty, she'll probably be spanking me and putting me to bed. Certainly, Magnolia was young enough for two. She was the sort of theatre-goer who clutches the hand of her neighbour when stirred. When Ravenel was absent, Kim learned to sustain her mother at such emotional moments." They too frequently attended the theater together. Their precarious mode of living cut them off from sustained human friendships, but the theater was always there to stimulate them, to amuse them, to make them forget or remember. There were long afternoons to be filled, and many evenings as Ravenel became more and more deeply involved in the intricacies of Chicago's night world. There was, curiously enough, a pendulum-like regularity about his irregular life. His comings and goings could be depended on almost as though he were a clerk or a humdrum bookkeeper. Though his fortunes changed with bewildering rapidity, his habits remained the same. Indeed, he felt these changes much less than did Magnolia and Kim. — No matter what their habitation, cheap rooming house or expensive hotel, he left at about the same hour each morning, took the same leisurely course toward town, returned, richer or poorer, but unruffled, well after midnight. On his off nights, he and Magnolia went to the theater. Curiously, they seemed always to have enough money for that. Usually, they dwelt somewhere north, just the other side of the Chicago River— At that time, a foul-smelling and visage stream, with no drainage canal to deodorize it. Ravenel, in lean times, emerging from his dingy hotel or rooming house on Ontario or Ohio, was as dapper, as suave, as elegant as that younger Ravenel had been, who, leaning against the packing case on the wharf at New Orleans, had managed to triumph over the handicap of a cracked boot he would stand a moment, much as he had stood that southern spring morning, coolly surveying the world about him. That his viewpoint was the dingy front stoop of a run-down Chicago rooming house, and his view the sordid street that held it apparently disturbed his equanimity not at all. On rising, he had observed exactly the same niceties that would have been his had he enjoyed the services of a hotel valet." He bathed, shaved, dressed meticulously. Magnolia had early learned that the slatternly warning habits which she had taken for granted in the cotton-blossom wives, Julie, Miss Means, Mrs. Soper, even the rather fastidious Ellie, would be found inexcusable in the wife of Ravenel. The sternly utilitarian undergarments of Parthy's choosing had soon enough been done away with, to be replaced with a froth of lace and tucks and embroidery and batiste. The laundering of these was a pretty problem when Farrow's frown decreed Ohio Street. Ravenel was spared these worrisome details. Once out of the dingy boarding-house, he could take his day in his two hands and turn it over, like a and turn it over like a bright, fresh-minted coin. Each day was a new start. How could you know that you would not break the bank? It had been done on a dollar. Down the street ravenall would stroll, past the ship-chandlers and commission-houses south of Ontario, to the swinging bridge that spanned the slimy river. There, he would slacken his already leisurely pace, or even pause a moment, perhaps, to glance at the steamers tied up at the docks. There was an occasional sailboat, a three-masted schooner, the Finney. A grain boat was in from up north. Over to Clark and Lake, you could sniff in the air the pleasant scent of coffee. That was Reed and Murdoch's big warehouse a little to the east, "'He sometimes went a block out of his way "'just to sniff this delicious odor. "'A glittering shine at the Sherman House "'or the Tremont. "'Good morning, George. "'Morning, Miss Ravenel. "'Morning. "'Baby, sir? "'Um, no. <laughs> "'His fifty cents, budgeted, "'did not include the dispensing of those extra pennies "'for the Times Herald, the Interocean, or the Tribune. "'They could be seen at McDonald's for nothing.' A fine Chicago morning. The lake mist had lifted. That was one of the advantages of never rising early. Into the cockeyed bakery for breakfast. Tomorrow it would be boils. Surely his bad luck would break today. He felt it. Had felt it the moment he opened his eyes. Terrapin and champagne tomorrow, Nola. "'Feel it in my bones. "'Oh, I woke up with my palm itching "'and passed a hunchback at Clark and Randolph last night. "'Why don't you let me give you your coffee and toast "'here this morning, gay dear? "'It'll only take a minute, "'and it's so much better than the coffee you, you get at the... At, at, "'you get at downtown.' Ravenel, after surveying his necktie critically in the mirror of the crazy little bureau, would shrug himself into his well-made coat you know I never eat in a room in which I have slept. Past the courthouse, corner of Washington reached. Cut flowers in the glass case outside the basement florists. A tapping on the glass with a coin, or a rapping on the pavement with his stick, if the malacca stick was an evidence. Hey, Joe! Joe clattering up the wooden steps. Here you are, sir, all ready for you. Just came in fresh. A white carnation. Ravenel would sniff the spicy bloom, snap the brittle stem, thrust it through the buttonhole of his lapel. A fine figure of a man, from his boots to his hat. Young, handsome, well-dressed, leisurely. Joe, the Greek florist, pocketing his quarter, would reflect gloomily on luck, his own and that of others. Ravenal might drop in a moment at Weeping Willie Mangler's, thence to Riley's pool room near Madison for a look at the racing odds. But no matter how low his finances, he scorned the cheaper gambling rooms that catered to the clerks and the working men. There was a great difference between Jeff Hankin's place and that of his brother, George. At George's place, and others of that class, Barker stood outside. "'Game upstairs, gentlemen!' Game upstairs. Come in and try your luck. Ten cents can make you a millionaire. At George Hawkins, the faro checks actually were ten cents. You saw their laboring man with their tin dinner pails, their boots lime spattered, their garments reeking of cheap pipe tobacco. There, too, you found stud poker, roulette, hazard, percentage games. None of these for Ravenal. He played a gentleman's game, broke or flush. This game he found at Mike McDonald's, the store. Here he was at home. Here were excitement, luxury, companionship. Here he was Gaylord Ravenal. Fortune lurked just around the corner. At McDonald's, his credit always was good for enough to start the play. On the first floor was the saloon, with its rich walnut paneling, its great mirrors, its tables of teakwood and ivory inlay, its paintings of lolling ladies. Chicago saloons and gambling resorts vied with each other in rich and massive decoration. None of your soap-scrawled mirrors and fancy bottle structures for these. Prince Varnell's place had, for years— been famous for its magnificent built-in mantle of Mexican onyx, its great marble statue of the death of Cleopatra, its enormous Sèvres vases. The second floor was Ravanagh's goal. He did not even glance at the whirling of the elaborately inlaid roulette wheels. He nodded to the dealers, and his greeting was deferentially returned. It was said that most of these men had come of fine old southern families. They dressed the part, but MacDonald himself looked like a farmer. His black clothes, though well-made, never seemed to fit him. His black string tie never varied. Thin, short, gray-haired, Mike MacDonald, the boss of the gamblers, would have passed anywhere for a kindly rustic. "'Playing today, Mr. Ravenhall?' Why, yes. Yes, I thought I'd play a while. Anything we can do to make you comfortable? Well, uh, yes. McDonald would raise a benevolent, though authoritative, hand. His finger would summon a menial. Dave, take care of Mr. Ravenall. Ravenall joined the others, then. A gentleman gambler among gentlemen gamblers. A group smartly dressed like himself, well-groomed, quiet, almost elegant. Most of them wore jewelry. A diamond scarf pin, a diamond ring, sometimes even a diamond stud, though this was frowned on by players of Ravenel's class. A dead cigar in the mouth of each. Little fine lines etched about their eyes. They addressed each other as, Sir. Thank you, sir. Yours, I believe, sir. They were quiet, quiet, yet there was an electric vibration in the air above and about the faro table. Only the dealer seemed remote, detached, unmoved. An hour passed. Two, three, four, five. The waiters, in their very white starched aprons, moved deferentially from group to group. One would have said that no favoritism was being shown, but they knew the piker from the plunger. Soft voice. Coaxing. Something to drink, sir. A little whiskey, sir. Cigar. Might be you'd relish a little chicken, white meat, and a bottle of wine. ravenhall would glance up abstractedly. Time, is it? Pushing six o'clock, Sir. Ravenel might interrupt his game to eat something, but this was not his rule. He ate usually after he had finished his play for the day. It was understood that he and others of his stamp were the guests of Macdonald or of Hankins. Twenty-five-cent cigars were to be had for the taking. Drinks of every description. Hot food of the choicest sort, and of almost any variety, could be ordered and eaten as though this were one's own house, and the servants at one's command. Hot soups and broths, steaks, chops, hot birds. You could eat this at a little white-spread table alone, or with your companions, or you could have it brought to you as you played. On long tables in the adjoining room were spread the cold viands, roast chickens, tongue, sausages, cheese, joints of roast beef, salads. Everything about the place gave to its habitués the illusion of plenty, of ease, of luxury. Soft red carpets, great prism-hung chandeliers, the clink of ice. The scent of sappy cigars and rich food. The soft slap-slap of the cards. The low voices of the dealers. It was all friendly, relaxed, soothing. Yet when the dealer opened the little drawer that was so cleverly concealed under his side of the table, the money drawer with its orderly stacks of yellow backs and greenbacks and gold and silver, you saw, if your glance was quick and sharp enough, the gleam of still another metal, the glittering, sinister, blue-gray of steel. A hundred superstitions swayed their play. Luck was a creature to be wooed, flattered, coaxed, feared. No jungle voodoo worshipper ever lent himself to simpler or more childish practices and beliefs than did these hard-faced men. Sometimes Ravenel left the faro table penniless, or even deeper in Mike MacDonald's debt. His face, at such times, was not more impassive than the bucolic host's own. Better luck next time, mister Ravnal. She's due to turn to morrow, Mike. Watch out for me to morrow. I'll probably clean you. And if not to morrow? To morrow. Luck must turn, sooner or later. There! Five hundred! A thousand! Did you hear about Ravnal? Yes, he had a wonderful run. It happened in an hour. He walked out with ten thousand. More, some say. On these nights, Ravenel would stroll coolly home as on losing nights. Up Clark Street, the money and neat rolls in his pocket. There were almost no street robberies in those simpler Chicago days. If you were, like Ravenel, a well-dressed, sporting-looking man strolling up Clark Street at midnight or thereabouts, you were likely to be stopped for the price of a meal. You gave it as a matter of course, unwrapping a bill, perhaps, from the roll you carried in your pocket. They might be living in modest comfort at the Revere House on Clark and Austin. They might be living in decent discomfort at the little theatrical boarding house on Ontario they might be huddled in actual discomfort in the sordid room of the Ohio Street rooming house. Be that as it may, Ravenel would take high-handed possession, but in a way so blithe, so gay, so charming, that no one could have withstood him, least of all his wife, who, though she knew him and understood him as well as anyone could understand this secret, baffling nature, frequently despised him often hated him, still was in love with him, and always would be. The child would be asleep in her corner, but Magnolia would be wide awake, reading or sewing or simply sitting there, waiting. She never reproached him for the hours he kept. Though they quarreled frequently, it was never about this. Sometimes, as she sat there, half dozing, her mind would go back to the river's and gently float there. An hour, two hours, would slip by. Now the curtain would be going down on the last act. Now the crowd, staying for the afterpiece and concert, would be moving down to occupy the seats nearer the stage. A song number by the ingenue, finishing with a clog or a soft shoe dance. The comic tramp, the character team in a patter act with a song, the afterpiece now. Probably red-hot coffee or some similar standby. Now the crowd was leaving. The band struck up its last number. Up the river bank scrambled the last straggler. You never threw me my line at all. There I was like a stuck pig. Well, how did I know you was going to leave out that business with the door? why didn't you tell me? "'Say, Ed, will you go over my song with me a minute? "'You know that place where it goes "'tum-titty, tum-titty, tum-tum-tum, "'and then I vamp? "'It kind of went sour tonight, seemed to me.' "'A bit of supper. "'Coffee cooked over a spirit lamp. "'Lumps of yellow cheese, a bite of ham. "'Relaxation after strain. "'A daubing with cold cream, a sloshing of water. "'Quieter, more quiet.' Quiet. Darkness. Security. No sound but that of the river flowing by. Sometimes if she dozed, she was wakened by the familiar hoot of a steamer whistle. Some big lake boat, perhaps, bound for Michigan or Minnesota, or a river barge or tug on the Chicago River nearby. She would start up, bewildered, "'scarcely knowing whether she had heard this hoarse blast "'or whether it was, only, after all, "'part of her dream about the river and the cotton blossom. "'Ravenal coming swiftly up the stairs. "'Ravenal's quick, light tread in the hall. "'Come on, Nola, we're leaving this rat's nest. "'Okay, dear, not now. "'You don't mean tonight, now. "'It'll only take a minute.' I'll wake up the slavey. She'll help. No, 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 I'd rather do it myself. Oh, gay. Kim's asleep. Can't we wait until the morning? But somehow the fantastic procedure appealed tremendously to her love of the unexpected, packing up and moving on, the irresponsible gaiety of it. The gas turned high, Out tumbled the contents of bureau drawers and boxes and trunks, finery saved from just such another lucky day. Froth and foam of lace and silk strewn incongruously about this murky little chamber with its frayed carpet and stained walls and crazy chairs. They spoke in half-whispers, so as not to wake the child. They were themselves like two children, eager, excited, laughing. Where are we going, Gay? "'Sherman, or would you like to try the auditorium for a change? "'Room's looking out over the lake.' <gasps> "'Oh, gay!' "'Her hands clasped as she knelt in front of a trunk. "'Next week, we'll run down to West Baden. "'Do us good. "'During the day, we can walk or drive or ride. "'You ought to learn to ride, Nola. "'In the evening, we can take a whirl at Sam Baddock's layout. "'Oh, don't play there. Uh, not, "'Not much, I mean.' let's try to keep what we have for a little while. After all, we may as well give Sam a chance to pay our expenses. Remember the last time we were down? I won a thousand at roulette alone, and roulette isn't my game. He awoke the landlady and paid his bill in the middle of the night. She did not resent being thus disturbed. Women rarely resented Gaylord Ravenel's lack of consideration. They were off in a hack fetched by Ravenel from the nearby cab stand. It was no novelty for Kim to fall asleep in the dingy discomfort of a north-side rooming house, and to wake up amidst the bright luxuriousness of a hotel suite, without ever having been conscious of the events which had wrought this strange. Instead of milk out of the bottle and an egg cooked over the gas jet... "'There was a shining breakfast tray "'bearing mysterious round-domed dishes "'whose covers you whipped off "'to disclose what-not of savory delights. "'Crisp curls of bacon, parsley-decked, "'eggs baked and actually bubbling "'in a brown crockery container, "'hot golden butter toast, "'and her mother calling gaily in from the next room, "'Drink your milk with your breakfast, Kim, darling.' "'Don't gulp it all down in one swallow at the end.' "'It was easy enough for Kim to believe in those fairy tales "'that had to do with kindly sprites who worked miracles overnight. "'A whole staff of such good creatures "'seemed pretty regularly occupied with the Ravenall affairs. "'Once a month there came a letter from Mrs. Hawks. "'No more and no less. "'That indomitable woman was making a great success of her business.' Her letters bristled with complaint, but between the lines Magnolia could read satisfaction and even a certain grim happiness. She was boss of her world such as it was. Her word was final. The modern businesswoman had not yet begun her almost universal battle against the male in his own field. She was considered unique. Tales of her prowess became river lore. Parthy Ann Hawks, owner and manager of the Cotton Blossom Floating Palace Theater. Strong, erect, massive, her eyebrows black above her keen, cold eyes, her abundant hair scarcely touched with gray, was now a well-known and important figure on the rivers. She ran her boat like a pirate captain. He who displeased her walked the plank. It was said that the more religious rivermen, who hailed from the Louisiana parishes always crossed themselves fearfully at her approach, and considered a meeting with the cotton-blossom a bad omen. The towering black-guard form, standing like a ship's figurehead, grim and portentous as the boat swept downstream, had been known to give a really devout Catholic captain a severe and instantaneous case of chills and fever. Her letters to Magnolia were characteristic. "'Well, Maggie, I hope you and the child are in good health. Often, and often, I think, land knows what kind of a bringing-up she is getting with the life you are leading. I can imagine. Well, you made your own bed, and now you can lie in it. I have no doubt that he has run through every penny of your money that your poor father worked so hard to get as I predicted he would.' I suppose you heard all about French's new sensation. French has the worst luck. It does seem she sank six weeks ago at Medley's, just above New Madrid. The fault of the pilot, it was, carelessness. If ever I heard it, he got caught in the downdraft of a gravel bar and snagged her. They say. I think of your poor pa. Now he met his end. It took two weeks to raise her, though she was only in six feet of water. On top of that. His other boat, the Golden Rod, you remember, went down about four weeks ago in the Illinois near Harden. A total loss. Did you ever hear of such hard luck? Well, business is pretty good. I can't complain. But I have to be right on hand every minute or they would steal me blind, and that's the truth. i got a new heavy. No great shakes as an actor, but handy enough. And a pretty good face in the concert, and they seem to like him. Well, we had a pretty rough audience all through the coal country, but whenever it looked like a fight starting, I'd come out in front and stand there a minute and say, if anybody started anything, I would have the boat run out into the middle of the river and sink her. That I'd never had a fight on my boat and wasn't going to begin any such low-life shenanigans now.' Magnolia got a swift mental picture of this menacing, black-garbed figure standing before the gay, crude curtain, the footlights throwing grim shadows on her stern face. That implacable woman was capable of cowering even a tough, coal-belt audience bent on a fight. "'Crops are pretty good, so business is according. I put up grape jelly last week.' A terrible job, but I can't abide this store stuff made of gelatine or something, and, and no real grapes in it. Well, I suppose you are too stylish for the cotton blossom by now, and Kim never hears of it. I got the picture you sent. I think she looks kind of peaked. Up all hours of the night, I suppose, and no proper food. What kind of an education is she getting? You wrote about how you were going to send her to a convent school. I never heard of such a thing. Well, I will close. As goodness knows, I have enough to do besides writing letters where they are probably not wanted. Still, I'd like to know how you and the child are doing and all. Your mother, Parthenia and Hawks. These epistles always filled Magnolia with an emotion that was a poisonous mixture of rage and tenderness and nostalgia. She knew that her mother, in her harsh way, loved her, loved her grandchild, often longed to see both of them. Parthy's perverse and inhibited nature would not permit her to confess this. She would help them with money, Magnolia knew, if they needed help, but first she must know the grisly satisfaction of having them say so. This Magnolia would not do though there were many times when her need was great. There was Kim, no longer a baby. This feverish and irregular life could not go on for her. Magnolia's letters to her mother, especially in lean times, were triumphs of lying pride. Sentimental Tommy's mother, writing boastfully home about her black silks and her gold chain, was never more stiff-necked than she. Gay is more than good to me. I have only to wish for a thing. Everyone says Kim is unusually tall and bright for her age. He speaks of a trip to Europe next year. Due fur coat. Never an unkind word. Very happy. Still, if Magnolia was clever at reading between the lines of her mother's bold letters, so too was Parthenia at hers. In fact, Parthy took many a random shot that struck home, as when once she wrote tartly, "'Fur coat one day, and none the next, I'll be bound.'"
0: Thanks for listening to Marilyn Lightstone Reads' Showboat. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock, executive producer Moses Snymer. This is the eighth book in our Marilyn Lightstone Reads podcast series, Other readings include Anne of Green Gables, The Age of Innocence, Pride and Prejudice, and The Woman in White. You can also help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in your preferred podcast store. And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network.